Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, by a Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. The password is, who are the Patriots? And Lali Lulelo. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm Brian, also. <laughs> Today's episode is A True Patriot the third in our ongoing series on Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater from 2004. Today, we'll introduce Ocelot and Eva into our narrative, the last of the original founders of the Patriots. But first, the spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Meryl marries. We know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. In this, our third episode on MGS3, we finally dive into the events of Operation Snake Eater, which span August 30th through September 2nd, 1964. We went deep into Snake's mission parameters last time, but a quick catch-up is overtly rescue Sokolov, destroy Shagohad, eliminate the boss in Volgan. Covertly, part of an ongoing plan by the boss in Zero to recover the Philosopher's legacy. With that out of the way, Naked Snake is inserted back into Salino Yarsk at 11.30 p.m. on August 30th in a Lockheed D-21 drone. A real thing, of course, capable of speeds over 2,200 miles per hour at an operational altitude of 90,000 feet. Snake was launched from an M-21 U.S. aircraft from the Arctic because Soviet airspace was being more closely guarded following Virtuous Mission. Upon making another superhero landing, Snake finds the boss, and her horse, waiting for him. Looks like death wasn't ready for you yet. Boss. That arm still hurt? What are you doing here? The boss easily disarms Snake, CQCing him to the ground and dismantling his gun. She tells him to go home, that he has no chance to beat her and the Cobras. She leaves on a cryptic note, saying Snake doesn't understand the half of it yet. She lights up his crashed drone and tells Snake if she sees him again, she'll kill him. Russian troops converge on the flaming wreckage, and we enter the first part of what I like to say is the game testing you, or, in other words, making sure you understand the game's systems and mechanics. You're immediately thrown into caution mode with no weapons. The maps are the same as the Virtuous mission, but I do like this naked portion of the exam. One thing I really like about this game that I kind of forgot to mention before, and it's it's actually something it shares in common with Half-Life 2, um, not necessarily dates, but it, it, that it takes a place over a specific time frame. Like this part of the game, it's not just like, it doesn't do the Arkham Asylum thing of being like, this is one crazy night that lasted 24 hours because you played everything in the game. Like it, it doesn't just take place in a static period of time. It's like it's over the course of like three days. And like you, you get you, the game goes out of its way to let you know what time of day every part is happening. in. so it feels like a natural progression, even if it doesn't quite fit into that. Like what is it supposed to be like 60 hour time span or something like that? Right. Um, Cause I mean, it's not a 60 hour game. But it still feels like that. It still feels like a few days have passed. And Half-Life 2 does that pretty well with like some levels are set at sunset, some are set at night, and then the next one's set at like daybreak. But it it's not something that a lot of games did then, and it's still not something games do now because a lot of games talk about having like, like Skyrim did, but that Skyrim did 
that's like that's not by design. I feel like that's just how the game works. It's not like a they didn't go out of the way to design one level taking place in dusk and one level taking place in, in the morning. And like I just like I like that passage. I like it, it feels like a few days have passed instead of just an indeterminate amount of game time, which is how most games work. Yeah, it works in a couple ways because first you have some of those uh, changes in uh, the time of day actually syncing up with relevant plot moments, like say Snake after the sorrow and it being the new dawn or whatever. Yeah. Um, and like the birth of Big Boss. And then also the, the couple of places where you do have to retread the same map, say like outside of Granini Gorky, you now at least get to do it in two different environments, you know, daytime and nighttime yeah. or morning and deep night. And it kind of changes the environment just enough where you don't feel like you're just retreading the same old ground. So um, I think they deploy it very well. Um, it's not just there. And you actually, when you think back on this game, you think of, oh, when you're walking through the mangroves, it's twilight, it's dusk. Yeah. Um, or, you know, this part of the day, you know, is in broad daylight. You remember these things, and it's really uh, helpful for building the imagery. Your initial objective is to rendezvous with Adam at Rasviet, where you found Sokolov and Virtuous. Adam was one of the two NSA codebreakers who had defected to the KGB a few years back and was going to feed information to Snake during this mission, this being a form of aid from Khrushchev. Adam's not there to meet Snake, though. Instead, he runs into Eva, the other of two codebreakers. Adam, Eva, Snake, get it? Snake presses her to provide the secret password, but she can't come up with an answer. She does, however, take out a bunch of soldiers that were about to ambush Snake, and Snake takes this as good enough and accepts her aid. We'll get to Snake and Eva's first night together here in a second, but let's use this space to lay out Eva. I only get off my bike when I fall in love or fall dead. What's your name? Tatiana. No, your real name. <laughs> What's wrong with Tanya? So Eva, which, who is voiced by Suzetta Mignette, which is a pseudonym, so we don't actually know the name of the actor who played uh, this character. There are theories, but yes, we could talk about those all the time. Uh, so the obvious place to start with Eva is her name itself. This is, of course, being the genesis of the Metal Gear story. She takes the role of Eve from the Garden of Eden story. We already got Snake, and we'll discuss Adam shortly. This theme will carry on with her to the end of the saga in MGS4, where her anti-patriots organization is named Paradise Lost. Not unlike MGS2, the game itself flat out tells you these are biblical references. Which I think could be, I think you could be, like, considering, it, it, I think a lot, of, a lot of biblical references in Japanese culture are treated more as, like, the way we treat, like, the like Greek myths like it's not it's not so ubiquitous that you should be expected to know what those things are all the time yeah sorry go ahead i'm just thinking it's, a lot of americans in particular have this opinion that like I, mean, I guess this is true of everybody but americans seem to think that all american culture and all american references and all and again i'm not saying that christianity is american but but we pretend that it is mm -hmm. are like ubiquitous and everyone should know them all the time and it's like that's not how that's not how things work especially in the east yeah and which now, I can mention this now. I actually moved it down in the outline, but as I am freshly Evangelion pilled, uh, Adam and Eva are, of course, very important things to that, which also draws some biblical aspects. I won't, you know, deny that, but um, those are also in themselves their own touchstones, yeah. especially considering how big Neon Genesis was. Um, 
you know, it was important here at the time too, and definitely by 2004, it had, uh, you know, well reached word of mouth in America by this point. But it was definitely something that influenced all Japanese media that came after it, just like we talk about the Matrix doing that here. Yeah, it's not overstating it to call it Star Wars level in Japan, mm-hmm. especially at this point where it was still like relatively fresh. In the sense that not even like in popularity, but just in like shorthand, like you don't have to explain Star Wars references in in America, like in America in in the West. Like if you make a Star Wars reference, you don't have to like put out like you, you it's not it's not high effort. You don't have to put a lot into it. You can just sort of do a I am your father reference, and everyone knows what that's from. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's where Eva is. I feel like in in Japan. Two, I personally like to think it's a shout out to North by Northwest, where the lead woman Eve Kendall, played by actor Eva Marie Saint, is a blonde bombshell who seems to be helping our protagonist, but her actual motivations are hidden to the audience. I can more confidently say Tatiana is a reference to the lead of From Russia with Love, which Brian and I found about in our 007 episode. In that movie, Tatiana Romanova, played by Daniela Bianchi, is a Soviet agent who faked effects to the West to lure, lure Bond into a much bigger plan. Her character design is supposedly based on a doll or idol that Kojima had, which weird, though Eva bears a resemblance to the two film characters I just mentioned. Her goggles are Kojima self-referentially invoking police knots, and her personality is loosely based on Fujiko Mine from Lupin III. Another in the endless Lupin references that I always enjoy seeing. Uh, Getting into Eva or Tatiana's fictional history, she was born in Idaho in May 1936 and would be recruited into a philosopher charm school at an extremely young age, which of course would be a joint U.S.-Chinese-Soviet school at this point. Eventually, she would join the Chinese People's Liberation Army, and that's why she carries a Chinese imitation Mauser, or the broom handle. The Adam and Eva NSA defection story is based on the real-life Martin and Mitchell defection in September of 1960. These were two cryptologists, William Hamilton Martin and Vernon F. Mitchell. They defected to the USSR and denounced U.S. policy on militarization, nuclear bombs, uh, revealing that the U.S. was spying on its own allies and invading foreign airspace. Um, The U.S., in response, tried to accuse them of sexual deviance and homosexuality. Um, Though those accusations were never confirmed, both led unremarkable lives in Russia thereafter, and both did get married to women, but neither of those marriages ended well. But, and, you know, not to be glib about this whole thing, but gay lovers defecting to the communist USSR to decry American imperialism, you love to see it. And Eva is, of course, an agent of the remnants of the Chinese philosophers making their own bid for the philosopher's legacy. Uh, Her plan was to, or what she did was infiltrate the KGB, and then she would arrive at Salino Yarsk around the same time of virtuous mission, posing as Sokolov's lover initially, but she would be mostly Volgan's plaything during the events of this game. And then, of course, the actual events of the ending and the meaning behind them at the end of this game would be told to us by Eva herself, which is, you know, an interesting choice. And we'll get to that when we get to the end of the game. Mm -hmm. Um, And then looking forward to her future, which we'll have a, you know, discussion on this a little bit later. And of course, when we get to future games, but she would be expelled from China for failing to recover uh, the philosopher's legacy and she would disappear in Hanoi. Um, She would reconnect with Big Boss in the early 70s and be there for the founding of the Patriots. 
Uh, she would eventually have the name Big Mama because she would be mother to Lo- uh, Liquid and Solid Snake in the Les Enfants Terribles project. Uh, she would eventually fall out with the Patriots, being more loyal to Big Boss, and would conspire with Ocelot for a lot of events we'll discuss again in MGS4. And getting into some of the themes and ideas when discussing Eva, we obviously have to talk about uh, gender and sexual politics and the male gaze, which the game kind of very interestingly, um, every time that Snake is looking at, you know, Eva's boobs or ass, um, you get the R1 trigger that allows you to go into first person, which, you know, it becomes a choice whether, um, you know, you want to engage in that. Uh, you know, which is an interesting choice. And then, you know, later on in the game when they're fighting Volgan, uh, you do one of those R1 triggers and, you know, Snake's actually looking into her eyes before they have a little kiss uh, before they take down the Shagohad. Eva very much uses her sexuality as a weapon or tool, uh, often seeing that she is trying to ensnare Snake um, using her sexuality, trying to get him uh, romantically interested to hopefully, as we'd find out, compromise him or make it easier for her to do the things she needed to do at the end of the mission. Which actually gets me to something that you brought up and I want you to talk about is the fact um, that, you know, in this way, it's kind of a role reversal of the traditional Bond girl uh, dynamic between Snake and Eva. Yeah. A, I, I like that for the most part, he resists her charms during the mission because Snake is he's here to do the mission. He's not here to have fun or enjoy himself despite himself. Um, but I, I do enjoy that, that the end of the game, like part of what I think breaks him is that Eva just sleeps with him and then then leaves just kind of abandons him and uses him, steals the, the legacy from him. Well, thinks she does. Um, and just kind of like tosses him aside the same way that bond usually does that to the bond girls. That's why you almost never see bond girls in more than one movie because the, he gets the girl and then he gets bored and he's as, as um I think bunny hop said in his, uh, and it's a really interesting way of looking at bond. Uh, the sexual politics of bond is that he's a, he's a, uh, especially Connery bond is like a, a sexual police officer. Like he's finding deviant women and, and sort of corralling them and making them like getting them under his control and then throwing them aside. I mean, the best example is, uh, is Goldfinger. Mm-hmm. When he's able to cure Pussy Galore of her of her of her homosexuality just by sleeping with her, and that also somehow makes her a good guy, and then he like moves on because he's won, he's defeated the woman, and like that, it's almost the exact opposite of like Eva breaks Snake down finally and gets him to focus to not focus on the mission because like he should have immediately <laughs> headed right to American space and and like you know he had all this important shit you know he had what they wanted mm-hmm. but no he he gave in to sleeping with eva for a night and then she you know takes everything he has and leaves him that tape that emotionally shatters him and destroys him and like not in, in a cruel way like she felt like she had to tell him all this stuff but like it's just interesting that that's in such an obvious bond game that it ends up being sort of a reversed sexually of like the the cool tough male heroes the guy who gets kind of just devoured and tossed aside like nothing yeah, and I was just thinking that, and she says in the end of the game that she doesn't leave Snake alive because she loves him or something like that, which is what you would anticipate from a movie or something from that time. Yeah. Instead, it's because of a much deeper relationship with the boss and the way that Eva and uh, Naked Snake kind of revolved around that story. So um, even when they do have Eva leave her, 
uh, Snake alive at the end. It's not because of the traditional like story beats we normally anticipate for. It's actually for something a little bit deeper, which um, I think just feeds into that idea of this kind of being a, this is you know the other way it could go or another way it can go instead of the way we got in Goldfinger. Because Bond also you know used up two sisters earlier in that story that just ended up dying because of what he was mm-hmm. uh, getting involved in. So, and uh, I know we've talked a little bit on this topic, but I mean, obviously, me and Brian are both men, <laughs> uh, so obviously, uh, we just want to acknowledge that as we're discussing the sexual politics here and gender. Um, and I think uh, something that Eva also does is that even though there is that kind of tortured uh, romantic relationship with uh, Snake, it helps keep all the kind of romantic dynamics focused there mm-hmm. so that the Snake and the boss dynamics, um, which do have, you know, maybe vectors of romance to it, but it's so richly layered and complex and much more than just a romantic relationship between Naked Snake and Boss. By having Eva exist and that kind of tension existing between Eva and Snake, it allows that Boss relationship also to kind of flourish in its own different way. Um, And you can look at the different ways that um, all three of these characters honestly relate to each other. And of course, that works because Eva and the boss are two of the better realized women in this series, especially in this game specifically. Snake and Eva retire to the room Snake found Sokolov previously. Eva introduces herself and gives Snake some useful equipment. First, a scientist outfit so he can get around Granini Gorky and Grasnygrad and Grasnygrad and some weaponry. An M1911 pistol, which Snake absolutely nuts over, which I'll put in here. Incredible. Do you like it? The feeding ramp is polished to a mirror sheen. The slide's been reinforced. And the interlock with the frame is tightened for added precision. The sight system is original, too. The thumb safety is extended to make it easier on the finger. A long type trigger with non-slip grooves. A ring hammer? The base of the trigger guard's been filed down for a higher grip. And not only that, nearly every part of this gun has been expertly crafted and customized. This gun, by the way, is the favorite of Robert De Niro's Sam from 1998's Ronin, which is specifically called out as an old but reliable model in that movie. I'd bet good money Kojima got it directly from there. Snake also gets his Mark 22 hush puppy back, apparently recovered and reassembled following Virtuous Mission. Snake's ready to hit the road, but both Eva and Paramedic convince him to take a rest. Snake's still recovering from all its injuries from Virtuous, plus the ass-whooping boss just gave him a little bit ago. Snake takes a nap while Eva communicates with her superiors, which, lol. Anyway, when Snake comes to, the entire facility is surrounded by the Ocelot unit. Snake says he'll give Eva cover to escape. He needs her close to Volgan so she can feed Snake intel. She makes her way out through a trapdoor underneath the bed, giving Snake a kiss on the way out, and we dive into the second part of the test I was speaking about earlier. I, I want to say real quick that I like that um, they work him sleeping to recover health into the narrative of the game, because that's that's one of my favorite mechanics of Snake Eater, is that if you, if you, go, if you like save the game and... and turn it off for a while as far as the game is concerned snake has just taken a nap or he's like take gotten a night's sleep so you'd recover pretty much all injuries from there which is a again one of the very fun little mechanics that it's a, it's a silly like if you describe it to somebody it sounds like a silly like like almost pretentious like showy 
uh, Kojima like flourish, but it's also like it can be, especially if you're playing in European Extreme, that that could save you in that game. Like that, it's a very important uh, and useful mechanic that I, I'm a big fan of personally. Yeah, and also if you're trying to get through the game without trying to use certain health items, yeah. or things like that, you know, that's a very useful way to recover life. Uh, so that's a good point. Also, for moaning a full night's sleep. Thank you, Kojima. It's very smart. Yes, uh, something I don't get very much these days. <laughs> uh, so we'll dive into the Ocelot shootout encounter that you have here. Uh, like I said, it's a test and more of the kind of battle mechanics uh, this time around. It's an analog to the shootouts outside the DARPA Chief Cell in Metal Gear Solid 1, as well as reaching the tanker holds in Metal Gear Solid 2. The number of enemies varies by difficulty. Uh, you begin in caution mode, and some enemies are scouting the entire area. Uh, some are on set patrols over much smaller uh, areas. And basically, you start in the room. Uh, the Ocelot unit kind of busts in at first, so you either have to hide or just start taking them out. Um, and then if you do hide, they'll eventually start and find their patrols, and then you can sneak out either through the front door or underneath the basement, and then the entire map of Rasviet that you've seen now a couple times in this game is available to you. And then at this point, it's very open-ended in terms of the ways you want to, you can take enemies out. You have two pistols, you know, one lethal, one non-lethal. You can use this time to do some CQC. Uh, you should have a couple weapons like stun grenades that you can also use to take out uh, sometimes several uh, soldiers at a time. Um, and then I mentioned you begin in caution mode, but if you are spotted, then you do go into alert mode. And uh, that's why, you know, the concept of stealth is baked into this uh, shootout encounter that wasn't a part of the initial versions of this uh, kind of test in Metal Gear Solid 1 and Metal Gear Solid 2. And it's a good mix of all those mechanics in terms of sneaking, shooting, really making sure you can, once again, engage with all the uh, battle or fighting mechanics because you're going to need them as you go through the Cobra unit and, of course, the end of the game. And it's that whole, you know, multiple ways to beat an encounter. Um, and it's Kojima on his way to his open-ended uh, stealth sandbox. It's what we call player-driven. Because I, this last time I did it, I don't think I fired a shot. I think I just ran up behind everybody and jumped and dove into them until they, and kept knocking them over until they were unconscious. Because it's more fun than CQC. Yeah. It's more challenging than CQC because you have to like time your dot, your jumps really quickly. But the idea of him running around spearing people like Goldberg was very funny to me. <laughs> Snake being like, I, this, this is a stealth mission. Also, I'm running full speed <laughs> at people and then shoulder tackling them until they can't get up. <laughs> if only you could give them a jackhammer too. Break out a Arn Anderson spine buster. <laughs> Damn, what was that noise? Because <laughs> I, I sometimes, you know, can spend almost 20, 30 minutes on this just very slowly. Because, like I said, I like to CQC uh, a lot of soldiers. Uh, so, if you, you know, kind of get a feel for their rotations, I kind of tend to go out of the basement once I hide in the locker or under the bed. And then um, I make my way kind of around the perimeter. Uh, there's a guy on the roof that I get very early. And then if you mm -hmm. take him out, uh, you know, it's just a bunch of people on ground level and it's very easy to kind of sneak around. And then you try to do CQC, but then I occasionally use uh, my Trank pistol to get a couple headshots in there. Yeah, you, you always got to mix the Trank in some. But. Yeah, there's just going to be some situations where you're just going to be too close or there's going to be too many people and you're going to just have to take a couple guys out with a couple shots. Um, yeah, I always, the last few times I played this game, I always ended up, going through my silencers too quickly so i tried not to shoot my gun very much this time through and i had i think i had more fun setting up you know like using animals to trap people and like 
not just doing like the straight up cautious stealth. Like I was being a little more proactive and aggressive, but trying to trap people and, and like, uh, I ended up killing about, I think about seven, when I got to the shower, I think there was about seven or eight guys and that's fine. I, I wasn't aiming for a specific no kill run. So I think that's a, like a reasonable, I, I don't think, I think it, it kind of breaks the fiction to assume that snake just straight up wouldn't kill anybody. I, 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 I like doing the no kill runs. I always do them for stealth games. But I do think, like, canonically, he killed somebody. Come on, he's Snake. (laughs) This game gives you too many opportunities where you're just firing a machine gun at people to assume that nobody died, unfortunately. Um, I really like, uh, because, so, if you play on, like, just a standard difficulty, there's uh, eight soldiers to the map, and four are on those kind of smaller circuits, and then four are kind of ranging all over. Um, But those four that are ranging all over first bust into that room, like I said. And if you're really good with uh, the stun grenade, um, you can, you know, take out two or three right there, um, because that's when they're very closely bunched together. If you hide under the bed and they blow down the door, that's another spot you can do it. So, and this is, it gives you a lot of ways to do it, but they're all pretty much the conventional ways. And then as you get through each kind of boss battle, there's going to be like an additional, like unconventional way that you can also take out the enemy kind of attached. But Mm -hmm. it does start showing that all the systems in terms of stamina and camouflage and eating and food and animals, all that stuff is. Uh, on the table for all of these boss encounters. It's not like, say, the Harrier battle or the Hind D where there's only this one weapon that'll do anything um, of value. And of course, there are like the Shagohad, you have to use the rocket launcher, but almost every other battle, you can do almost anything you want to take out the uh, bosses, which is really cool. So when the Ocelot unit is cleared, we get another showdown between Ocelot and Snake, but this time Ocelot has a masked Eva hostage. He teases Snake over his CQC stance and takes note of the female spy he's holding, but Snake retorts by making fun of his intricately ornamented single-action army revolver. It's a nice gun, I'll give you that. But the engraving gives you no tactical advantage whatsoever. Unless you were planning to auction it off as a collector's item. Snake goes on to say Ocelot doesn't have the guts to kill him, and this gives Eva a chance to break free, finding her bike and giving Ocelot a Street Fighter guile-like uppercut kick with the motorcycle, which honestly would probably kill a person. Would rip his face off. (laughs) Yes. Uh, She flees back, Ocelot slinks away, and Snake presses forward. We have a couple maps here we're going to take uh, we're going to talk about before heading into our next boss battle. And these maps are very much built on that pacing that Brian talked about in previous episodes where um, the difficulty, the complexity, and the challenge of the maps um, kind of increases as it builds up to a boss fight and then kind of ranches it down and then builds it back up again. So the first is the swamp. Chornier Prude, I think is how you say it. Chorn- Chornier Prude. Um, and I'm sure if you looked at the translation, it probably just means swamp or something like that. Yeah. Big swamp, I think, is what it was. Um, So this map has no enemies, and one thing I instantly do on these maps that have no enemies is I take off my suppressor um, if I'm going to go hunting, because like you said, uh, suppressor degradation is something you really have to track, especially on the harder difficulties when you don't have as many uh, to go through. This is, um, if anyone's played the game, this is the the big swamp with like the crisscross wires above it, and like it's, it's probably the biggest... Like, just wildlife area in the game, I think. Yeah. Not counting the caves, which are kind of like multiple maps, multiple screens. It's the biggest single screen, I think. It's great. It's a great little area. Yeah. I think the only one that might be close to it is uh, 
after the sorrow fight. Yeah. But that's also, um, it's not supposed to be littered with like goodies and meant to be yeah. like a challenge for you to get all over the place. Cause one of the uh, points of this map is now to start playing around freely in the new environments that metal gear solid three is introducing. That includes the swimming mechanic because the big, the biggest portion of this map is just basically a giant lake or swamp that you actually have to swim through. There's all sorts of uh, trees that you can climb, uh, wires, so you can start working on your hanging and you're inching along these wires. So uh, this is kind of a map where you can really get familiar with those mechanics, uh, especially the hanging mechanic, because there are going to be places where you can inch along and then drop down and hang on to something else mm -hmm. and work out that timing to get um, some of the equipment that's laying around this map, uh, you know, including the croc cap or the gavial cap, which, um, you know, Snake puts a little uh, alligator head on top of his head. So when you're underwater or partially submerged, um, you appear like a crocodile and can avoid enemy detection. Yes, that's why he wears it. Not because it not because he likes it. He doesn't like anything. Yes. Um, but there's also just a lot of animals to hunt on this map. There's fish, there's alligators, there's snakes. Um, there's a lot of equipment and ammo lying around, so you can really just stock up, make sure you're fully loaded going into the next couple maps and into uh, the next boss fight. Make sure to go under the water. There's always stuff there. Mm -hmm. I think in 2004, you could be forgiven for not thinking that you could do that because that's not a really common... Not a lot of games went out of their way. Still don't, honestly, to program in specific underwater movement which i think is neat yeah and one thing that this game does and i think it might have started doing this in mgs2 when you had to uh swim in the big shell but um it ties your stamina meter to um your breath as well mm -hmm. uh which is a nice little touch so obviously if you're more hurt or you're low on stamina um you know you can spend a shorter times underwater uh, so we'll move on to the next map, which there are multiple exits from the swamp map to the next map. And this will kind of be an ongoing trend for a lot of these jungle areas, uh, which is a key part of the exploration because sometimes they go to the same map and sometimes they go to different divergent maps that have extra goodies and stuff like that. Yeah. So anyways, the jungle area in the second map here, um, you start seeing some, you know, basic infrastructure or security measures like electrified gates with the options to go over, you know, climbing a tree and using a branch to get out onto the other side or going under through various cuts uh, near the brush. Isn't there one you can go through also? There's one that's, um, it's broken, but it's broken at like waist level. So you have to do a running, like a dive through it, which I always like doing. Oh yes, yes, yes. You're completely right. Yes. So yeah, so there's like over, under and through, um, so, which is, you know, kind of cute in its own way. And uh, after you work through a couple fences, that when you, that's when you start coming across a couple enemy patrols and you see patrols with dogs, which is absolutely something that's pretty new in this game. Um, and the dogs are uh, present different challenges on maps than enemy soldiers do. They're not, you know, cut of, you know, they're built different, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it. If you use your tranquilizer, they don't actually stay tranquilized very long. Um, I guess you need to get that good horse tranquilizer for these dogs. These dogs are experienced with tranks, okay? <laughs> they built up their tolerance. And, uh, and then killing or tranking a dog, either... Uh, which way will usually result in raising the suspicion of a guard because they'll make a loud yelp and they'll go, hey, what's that? And then, you know, the, a guard will generally come over and investigate. 
And the way I like to get around these dogs is instead I like to feed them and make them go to bed. If you feed them uh, food, um, they'll you know chow down on it for a little bit, and then they'll go back to their their original uh, station, um, and then they'll generally pass out. And when they're passed out, you can generally uh, crawl right past them without much issue or uh, disturbance. Mm-hmm. And also introduces the uh, the concept of feeding. Which is, which I think is one of the most fun ways to get through areas is to feed guards poison food, to throw food at them. So they're like, hey, what's that? And then they pick it up and start eating like a raw lizard. Cause that's what I would do if I was in a, patrolling a jungle and somebody threw a box of a, a like rotted lizard at me. I'd be like, ooh, I gotta eat it. Yeah. And uh, even if it's not, or even uh, if they're just hungry and it's normal food, it can be used to just throw uh, soldiers off their. Yeah. Yeah, patrols. Uh, which one thing I was thinking about is in the very you know indoor and grid style maps of MGS one and two. A mechanic I used a lot in that game was knocking on walls and basically yeah. throwing soldiers off their patrols so I can get past. But with this game where you're mostly crawling, uh, with mostly wide open jungle maps or things where you can't really knock, uh, throwing food to disrupt enemy patrols is a great tactic. That is this game's analog for uh, one of the highest level hitman tactics there are which is either um it's just because a lot of targets in those games have bodyguards who never leave them so you either have to walk into their way and disrupt them or the more advanced one is to find a pistol somewhere put it on the ground in in front of where the path is so that the target will be like hey pick that gun up and the guy will go pick the gun up and walk away leaving you alone with the target that's smart it's it's very uh, high level stuff it's it's um, I mean, it is like something you don't think about, but it's it's like the it's when you figure that out in that game, it's the most hilarious. Like, oh, I could have just done this the whole time. Like, yeah, you can't just interrupt this patrol pattern. Like, it doesn't the game the game is is allows you to do that. I guess is what I'm saying. Which is you don't think again, you wouldn't think a lot of stealth games don't do something like that. It's not um, you have to, it, it's more it, it, a lot of stealth games try and focus you on skill. Being like, well, you have to fit this shot in here to kill this guy while he's being, instead of just being like, oh, you could just walk up and like push the guy over and he'll walk the other way. It's like, oh, all right, that fixed it. It's again, it's the thing that 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 stuff is the way that, that Hitman and Metal Gear are the most similar to me. Mm-hmm. That and like, um, th- that instead of it being a stealth challenge, like, like Splinter Cell or like Dishonored kind of, or like a lot of these other games are like, can you, are you good enough? This one's just like, do you possess enough lateral thinking to be like, oh, I can just tinker with this Rube Goldberg machine and throw these guys off of their pattern, and suddenly I have complete control of this? It's it's more like Spanner in the Works stuff than it is like elite stealth operative stuff. Because again, the stealth stuff in Metal Gear Solid Three is not very difficult. Mm-hmm. If you just try and sneak through every area, it's not that hard. You just got to be really patient. But that's not the fun way to play Metal Gear, and I don't think that's the way that they want you to play Metal Gear. No, I think they want you to experiment with basically every way to play, mm-hmm. um, which is really fun. And uh, speaking of multiple ways to play, there's a part of this map that actually splits in two different routes, you know, one to the left and one to the right. And down each path is a different camo. Um, on one side is the splitter camo, and on the other side is the choco chip. A lot of these items... Um, if you don't miss too many of them, you'll have an opportunity to get them later in the game. Yeah. Um, so it's not like you have to get them at the first spot, but obviously if you skip too many, you're not going to be able to get every you know item in camouflage. So. Which is the point of game. That's the point of playing, the, playing a game is getting all the stuff. Mm-hmm. There's no other point to play a game other than acquiring stuff. 
Um, and then again, there are multiple exits into the next map, which is the helipad. And this is a enemy fortified map to, you know, kind of complete the escalation from no enemies to some enemies and now um, a very heavily uh, enemy fortified map. And not just enemy fortified, but there are trenches, there's fences, there's barbed wire, there's some gun placements, which um, Snake can actually use and would be a big part of future Metal Gear games is actually being able to starting to use the various gun placements that are on maps mm -hmm. um, and then this uh, also reflects uh, indoor and outdoor spaces because there's three different sheds as well as um, an office or you know kind of mini base uh, on this map that's um, you know it's has com it's completely indoors it has walls it has a ceiling but the indoor map and outdoor map uh, completely coexist in the same space there's no loading screen or break between uh, the inside and the outside and this is where we come across our first supply depots, which we kind of mentioned in our opening episode on this game. Um, this map has all three, a medical depot, a food depot, and a weapons depot. And in that last, the weapons depot, you can acquire TNT, and then you can place that TNT in each of these uh, shacks or depots. Um, if you blow it up, it will affect, uh, what's it called, the enemies on the maps kind of surrounding uh where these uh, depots are. Mm -hmm. um, if you take out the medical thing, uh, enemies will have lower life. If you take out the food depot, the guards will be hungry and more distractible by food and rotten food. And if you take out the weapons depots, uh, enemies will have less ammo, will have to turn to their pistols and knives much quicker as opposed to relying on their shotguns and assault rifles. And actually doing all that uh, in this map doesn't really do much, just unless you plan on really backtracking from here. Uh, but this it, this kind of gives you a place where you can kind of test out what doing that uh, means um, and what it entails to sneak into all these depots and blow them up. Uh, but in future uh, maps, when you actually blow them up, then the, what's it called, subsequent maps will actually have enough soldiers where these have a significant impact. And then blowing things up for significant impact, we can talk about the parked uh, helicopter that's um, on this map, which if you blow it up, it will actually minimize the number of maps you have to deal with helicopters later in the game, most specifically when you're up in the mountains. Um, you know, there's a helicopter that's supposed to harangue you during the last two maps, but if you bomb the helicopter here, I think there's only one on the last map uh, regardless. I forgot that... Um these maps are uh, Bolshaya past South, Bolshaya past Base, and now Bolshaya past Crevice. Yes. I forgot about the names again. The maps are very often kind of named in groups, so they'll be like a North, a South, or like mm -hmm. a East Ridge, West Ridge, you know, stuff like that. And they often kind of lump in together with a boss fight like we're about to get into here in a second because when you leave the helipad map we arrive at the crevice with ocelot on the other side and this being the third time we've run into ocelot in this game i guess we'll uh, run him down now including the boss fight we're about to endure ocelots are proud creatures they prefer to hunt alone so ocelot voiced by josh keaton Ocelot, of course, is old hat for this series and podcast at this point. Though not quite yet carrying the title of Revolver or Liquid, this Ocelot is a major of a Gru unit Snake will encounter several times during this game. Much like most of the memes of Metal Gear, Ocelot's story starts here as well. 
Coming into this game, 2004 audiences knew Ocelot as Liquid's right hand from the Shadow Moses events of MGS1 in 1998. He would be revealed to actually be working for the third snake, Solidus, in the end, which would lead into the events of MGS2 in 2001. Here, we'd learn he was working for some amorphous Illuminati organization called the Patriots, but his right hand, formerly belonging to Liquid Snake, took control. MGS2 ended with Solid Snake and Otacon in pursuit of Liquid Ocelot, resolution unknown by the time MGS3 was released. Ocelot is depicted as age 21 for the events of this game and the youthfulness shows in the face design. Fitted in Gru uniform with a red beret, gloves, and of course spurs to bring home that cowboy aesthetic. His facial design also mirrors features of both the boss and the sorrow for obvious reasons we will get to in a second. What I think that we'd want to highlight is the motion capture performance for Ocelot in MGS3, which is probably the best in the entire franchise. This is twofold. Taro Kanazawa doing the bulk of the physical performance, but Kenichi Tornado Yoshida doing the gun tricks, with an assist to Bill Yokoyama and MGS military advisor Motosada Mori doing some of the CQC stuff. Kanazawa gets credit for a lot of the hilarious showboating and hand gestures. His signature finger guns were an ad lib, in fact. And Yoshida with the gun tricks is incredible. I highly recommend searching YouTube for his videos. The actual motion capture shows this mustachioed man in motion capture outfit just ludicrously spinning guns as Ocelot, um, which I honestly thought was just CGI bullshit until I saw these videos. I just wish my name was Tornado Yoshida. But now, um, one of the things I think this game, we talked about before how uh, MGS3 really succeeds, even though the cutscenes are long. It's focused almost entirely on what's happening in the game right now. I'm not like a weird preamble about 18 1800s colonialism or something, which is, oh, we love that stuff, but you can see how that like really drags down the pace of a game. Specifically, MGS4 happens a lot, but it happens a lot in one and two. Um, but the other thing that I think I didn't mention before that makes this game the cutscenes more enjoyable is that the, they're just more dynamic. Like people are getting in fights and like there's action stuff happening. It's it's more like just dynamic, and all, you know you like these characters. You like even Volgan. You like you like to, to dislike him, but like Volgan, Eva, Snake, Ocelot, and the boss just kind of bounce off of each other and get in these weird combinations of the five of them together, and just do all this cool stuff. And really, the the motion capture is really what I think sells a lot of that. It's just really good. It's really enjoyable. Uh, I think some of this is due to size limitations of games, but a lot of the story had to happen through Kodak in MGS One and Two. So you'd have like long stretches where Raiden is next to Ames or Emma, and you would just go to Kodak um, because they had to save space for you know other assets in the game. Um, whereas here, there's the only Kodak calls are when they have to be Kodak calls, like the two people aren't physically by each other. So then you have a lot more actual cutscenes where Ocelot and Snake are bouncing off each other or Snake and Eva. And then, like you mentioned, the entire last act of the game, they very smartly put Volgan, Boss, Ocelot, Eva, and Snake in the room together um, just to bounce off each other between the torture scene and um, right before the Volgan boss fight. So you can see all like the way the relationships between these five characters really bounce, you know, works it 
in the context of just the two individuals with each other, but the two in the context of all everyone else. And that includes the physical performances that everyone's putting on because like the, you know, looks that snake and, uh, Ocelot give each other or the boss and Ocelot or Eva and the boss, like all of that physical performance matters in this game. And there's a lot of stuff that's communicated to you without words. It's the way that the boss looks at Eva indicating that she's doing something that Volgan and Ocelot might not know about or something like that. Um, and that speaks to the all of the motion performance captures in this game. So we'll get into Ocelot's fictional history here. Uh, he was born in 1944 as the son of the boss, or the joy, and the sorrow, uh, and he was named Ademska. He was born on D-Day during the invasion of Normandy, birthed on a battlefield. His birth would leave a scar in the shape of a snake on the boss due to the C-section she endured to give birth to him. And uh, he was basically taken by the philosophers uh, shortly right after this, I assume. After they sewed the boss up, she was forced to go on the battlefield, and he was basically taken away right then and there. Ocelot would go on to work for the NSA prior to defecting to the Soviet Union, defecting in quotes, and he would be the Adam in the Adam and Eva story that Zero briefed us on earlier. He, would, uh, he got in with the Gru and was promoted quickly by higher-ups due to his lineage because it was known that he was, at least by the higher-ups in the military, that he was you know related to the boss and or the sorrow. I would assume the sorrow. Yeah. I would, I would assume that was, like, that was more the, the pull. Yeah, and that makes sense, especially after U.S.-Soviet relations yeah. quickly changed uh, near the end and after of World War II. And uh, his life would actually be used as leverage uh, by the philosophers to make the boss kill the sorrow um, in 1962 in events preceding this game. Uh, what I think was happening here is uh, Ocelot was one of the moles that the boss had on the Soviet side. And uh, this was kind of discovered in 1962, which actually would coincide with the first time they tried to get Sokolov out of Russia. And uh, when the philosophers discovered this, um, they knew they had to, you know, kind of either rein in the boss or they had to do something. And so Ocelot's life was kind of used as uh, leverage to force either one of the boss to kill the other because there can only be one boss and one snake, um, so to speak. Okay, and then just, again, just so we kind of keep track of what's going to kind of be told over the course of this game, Ocelot posed as Gru, but he secretly betrayed the Gru for the KGB, a.k.a. the Khrushchev faction, but then he's betraying both the KGB and Gru to the U.S. He is secretly working for the CIA um, and, you know, zero soon after this. So the thing I wanted to talk about, it's one of the things from this game that I think you can read either way. So we can assume that the boss knows who he is, right? Yes, I, I completely believe. And I think that's why a lot of times they avoid eye contact or the boss avoids eye contact with him. Yeah, because I don't know if, if I think we're supposed to think that Ocelot does not know. I, I believe so. During this game, he may later. I, I believe so because uh, the way, if you remember in Virtuous Mission, he was expecting the boss when Snake showed up. And for some reason, the way that like the way he seems surprised that it was snake and not the bosses. Cause he's like, wait, you're not the boss. Um, the way he said it wasn't like, Oh, he knew what it just didn't seem like the way he would talk about his own mother. If that's who he was expecting is what I'm trying to get at. He also, and I know, I know he's kind of reverent and kind of uh, like his whole, his whole stick in this game is like kind of being a little shithead. But like, I do, I do think he would be a little more respectful to it. If he knew that was his mother, he was talking to <laughs> like, I don't think there's any argument that the boss doesn't know because she, I mean, just her mocking his hand gesture is very much like 
taking the piss out of him. Yeah. In a way that, in like a very affectionate way, I feel like. Yeah, if I had a kid, I would do the same thing to him if he was being like that. If I had a, if I had a kid who was Ocelot, who acted like this, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I think it's just an interesting thing to track during their interactions in the game. Because he he seems much more interested in Volgan's approval than... He doesn't seem to be to really care about the boss. It's like it's not someone he... It's not someone he wants to spend time with or like that he seems to crave the approval of. And I think that would be... I think that... Uh, that, that um, dynamic would be a little different if he knew that that was his mother yeah um although now that we're thinking about it um knowing how much of an actor ocelot is if this was all just a deep fake to pretend you know he didn't know who the boss was so there was no suspicion cast on him whatsoever um because we talk about all the dynamics of the five major characters of this but in some capacity Ocelot, Eva, and the boss are all supporting Snake to some degree, which is yeah. So it's really four against one, you know, where you're supposed to think it's everyone against Snake, but it's really, honestly, everyone against Volgan uh, when you think about it. Yeah, I suppose. I, I just feel like I feel like they they do enough little subtle stuff on the bosses, and I I don't think Ocelot knows at the, at this point. And I think one of the reasons he joins the Patriots is that someone tells him. I I, th- I think safely or that he finds out on his own regardless whether he knows in this game he finds out um between now and whatever the next important canonical touch point is for the metal gear saga whether you want to call that peace walker or portable ops um by the events of those games or the Lays infanterie project he knows um by that point for sure yeah absolutely and of course uh as we mentioned with all metal gear games these questions of canon are intentionally left kind of like this with both vague and with some contradictory information. So you really can make up your own. So if someone has a really good argument for Ocelot clearly knowing the boss is his mother for this game, I would be open to it. I would just have to, you know, hear that argument out. And looking just forward a little bit to his fictional future, we know that he would recover the uh, philosopher's legacy for America and for Zero, leading to the birth of the Patriots, which are, of course, events for later games. What we know is that he remains loyal to Big Boss in the end, to the point where he'll pose as a Patriot and then later as a threat to the Patriots just to help bring them down. And these are mostly discussed in MGS4, which we'll get to in our next chapter. So, uh, themes and concepts with Ocelot, again, old hat for this podcast. It's carrying forward a lot of themes from the Ocelot meme of previous games. Uh, Things like espionage, Hollywood pomp and circumstance, and the Western aesthetic. Um, And you get that espionage aspect really gets to be played up here due to the scene of the 1960s Cold War aesthetic and the scene of a James Bond movie that's being played on here. Uh, And now we can actually turn a little bit to the boss battle itself, which is a face-off with pistols, which is kind of a phantom of the original MGS1 fight with Ocelot, though mechanically this uh, battle works a little more like the Olga fight on the tanker from MGS2. Um, And then calling back again to that MGS1 fight, um, Ocelot's reloading, uh, his ammo count are uh, things that are on display on the screen and are actual part of the pacing and mechanics of this battle. Doesn't he even have similar lines to MGS1? Mm-hmm. We talked about how much how much he likes reloading and how the thrill of it. Yes. I, I love those. Those are such stupid lines. Yes, and it'll actually end on something similar too. Yes. So we can really point to this moment almost being the true birth of Revolver Ocelot, so to speak. And uh, speaking about that, uh, the Hollywood scene that inspires this battle, um, it very much is an old fast, 
old-fashioned Western shootout. And they even do a little split-screen shot of Ocelot and Snake, which Kojima directly attributes to uh, Calling Out 24, which was a popular show of the times. Thinking about the arena that you fight Ocelot in, um, it's split exactly in half, so Snake and Ocelot can fight close quarters. It has to be, you know, pistols at dawn, basically, uh, which is uh, kind of similar to how the Olga arena is set up. And then all, it's also very similar to the Ocelot uh, battle in MGS1 in the sense that a lot of the map isn't really accessible by the player um, because in the MGS1 fight, the entire middle of the map was kind of cordoned off because that's where Kenneth Baker, or not Kenneth Baker, that's R2-D2. Oh, wait, no, I think it might be Kenneth Baker. I think you're right, yeah. Um, but the arms tech present is all tied up at the C4. And then, of course, splitting the map in half can also be a reflection of Snake and Ocelot kind of being two halves of something. Um, you know, however you want to break it down, there's many ways you can interpret that. There are two halves of the legacy of the boss. Uh, one kind of carries on the genes of the boss, while one carries on the meme of the boss, um, and all sorts of things that we can even get further into an MGS4, and I won't... Uh, boil down here, but that is something that I just thought of that might be symbolically important. And uh, the dirt brown aesthetic of the ground, the mountains, the tree bark, it all gives it that dusty western feel like they were showed, showing down at OK Corral or you know, in the middle of an empty street uh, in the middle of a western town. Which Ocelot supports if you, it's my favorite, probably my favorite little hidden mechanic in the game is if you walk, if you just walk up slowly to the edge of the cliff, he takes as an invitation to do a classic duel and he loves it. He's so excited. Oh yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, he loves doing that shit. It's great. It's it's even better if you are on a second playthrough and you have the uh the Colt, the nineteen the same gun. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, you can do a uh, gun tricks, I believe, if you like press down yeah. on R three or something or L three uh when you're holding the gun. And I believe if you do that you'll get a comment out of him as well. I think he just does it back also. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fun. He loves it. Um, and it is a highly interactive environment that you're fighting Ocelot in, which is, of course, something we'll say for all the boss fights here. Um, you can shoot beehives to get Ocelot out from undercover, um, which may actually provoke the Ocelot eunuch to take pot shots at you from the rafters for, you know, fighting quote unquote dirty. Um, and you can also shoot off Ocelot's hat, which is a little bit of fun as well. It doesn't really do any damage, but it's just. Yeah, I love the, the, the whole thing with the Ocelot unit. It's a like comment on the fight, They're like the peanut gallery. They're like, good shot, sir. <laughs> And like, if you throw, uh, I think if you throw poisoned food at them, they're like, you cheater. They get mad at you. What I think is interesting is that you, they, they can't be hurt or killed. So they really are like, they literally are the peanut gallery. And, and this is like, they're just there to, to yell stuff at you. Like, they're, I think they're the only unkillable. Like, you can't hurt them, which is really weird for this game. That's all about player freedom. But so that, that tells me that they, they were there solely to, for comic relief to be like, to laugh at to laugh at snake and and I think there's a way that you you can get attacked by bees and I think they have a line for it. There's just a bunch of stuff they added in of like having the Dragon Ball style like guys sitting off to the side watching the fight, which is really weird for this series. Uh, but you know, if you think about Ocelot as a theatrical character, yeah, uh, yeah. You, you, a theatrical character wants an audience to play to, and the Ocelot unit actually is a great way to kind of. Uh, show that off in this game because very often you don't really have a one-on-one with Ocelot where there's no one around to observe uh, kind of his and Snake's uh, repartee. So well, at the, en- at, at the end of MGS4, I suppose. Yeah. Where his theatricality breaks through all <laughs> all mortal concepts of, of decorum and, and decency and he just becomes – he becomes the living spirit of the theater. 
right performing so much that he his brain explodes i assume i assume that's why he dies he just gets so excited <laughs> and uh speaking of uh ocelot dying at the end canonically right here ocelot doesn't die he actually that bottle uh the battle ends with uh, the line you were lucky we'll meet again which is how the mgs1 battle ends on the same line and in a parallel to that game uh this ocelot boss battle is interrupted by something that uh leads into the next boss battle uh hold that thought for one moment uh, because uh, when we get to all these bosses, we also want to talk about the camo you uh, can win if you take them out non-lethally. Uh, and in this case, if you take out Asla with your uh, Mark 22 Hush Puppy, you get the Animals camo, which is, I would say, actually one of the more useful boss camos you get in the game um, because it's good in several environments, especially stony and desert ones. And it's I think the best camo when you're up in the mountains, you can get up to 95% pretty easily with that and the desert face uh, camo. And the added bonus of the animals camo is that um, it prevents a shaky uh, trigger hand no matter how low your stamina is. Um, So it just makes it a lot easier just to shoot. And um, there are times where that uh, can be quite useful. No, no other, there's no other specific boss fights where that's very useful that I can think of. Um, I want to say real quick, we we didn't even mention we should mention the the funny stunt casting in this game where if you kill Ocelot at any point before this, uh, Campbell just shows up and yells at you. <laughs> yes, you changed the future, Snake, which is great. It's great that they they brought Paul Lighting in to record those like four lines, and that's that's his only contribution to the game. But it's great that he's in the game. You like to hear him. Um, he was in some of that uh, Ape Escape yeah. stuff or the Snake versus Monkey because that's Solid Snake. But yeah, you're right. And uh, th- that's fun. And, you know, one thing I kind of lamented about at least MGS2, maybe a little bit about MGS1, is that we could talk about the Metal Gear Solid game over, like mechanics and screams and all the different stuff they do with it and how in MGS2 um, it's one of the many hints about the deeper truth going on with Raiden and the Patriots, the way that you get um, the mission over screen instead of the traditional game over you mean fish it mailed also yes exactly and again they start playing on this here because this is a prequel where we know the events of stuff that happened already so if snake dies and you quit or you kill ocelot um after your encounter with him in virtuous mission um it actually goes from game over and says time paradox because of course the events of future games could not exist within uh you know, if you killed Ocelot or Snake at this point, of course, this is, you know, video games existing as a singular timeline and not a multiverse timeline or something like that. Um, I don't think we need to wrap our heads around a Metal Gear multiverse. That's definitely not worth it. But Well, MGS5 kind of hits at the, at the concept. and then mm-hmm. that, Well, I mean, who, who wouldn't want to lead into Metal Gear Survive? It's not a great. <laughs> oh god! Oh gosh! Hopefully, yeah. that is the only time we mentioned Metal Gear Survive. Hopefully, uh, that one uh, we have talked about basically every other Metal Gear game outside of the Solid Canon, and whether we're going to cover it, and we're still deciding. I'm not playing. We are I'm not, not playing cover Metal shit. Gear. Survive. I'm not going to play that shit. No, no yeah, way. I am not. I am not playing Metal Gear Survive. Nope. Can't make me. So, your encounter with Ocelot is cut short, however, as a swarm of bees descend down on Snake once again. In an absolute dope but nonsense move, Ocelot keeps them away by spinning his guns, killing bees by the dozens as he runs off again. Snake, nowhere near as cool, has to dive into the crevice for refuge, and that's where we'll leave the synopsis for today. Who are the Patriots? Who are the Patriots? Answer me! 
So I wanted to end today's episode with a discussion about the founding Patriots. Now that we basically met them all in story and have spent the last two episodes going over them individually. As this game teaches us, the philosophers were a cabal of power brokers from the U.S., China, and Soviet Union who combined their powers following World War I to steer global events in hopes of preventing another world war. That, of course, failed, and following World War II and the start of the Cold War and rise of communism, the philosophers would fraction into national organizations at odds with one another, with the mad scamper to recover the enormous funds the philosophers had accumulated in the previous decades. Funds which would end up being in the hands of Volgan by the time of Operation Snake Eater, and these funds are of course called the Philosopher's Legacy. Over the course of the following decade, the Philosopher's Legacy would be recovered by America, mostly due to Ocelot, and the Patriots would be founded. While in MGS2 we learn that the Patriots are the amorphous concept of American hegemony enforced by massive AIs, it was indeed started by a group of people— the stinger on Sons of Liberty, where Otacon says the 12 members of the Patriots died over 100 years ago, probably refers to the original Wiseman's Committee of the Philosophers that gets mentioned here. So the founding members of the Patriots are Zero as leader, Big Boss as the soldier and symbol, Ocelot and Eva as the spies, Paramedic doing all that medical research, gene therapy and nanomachines that will lead to Gray Fox and SOP, and Sigint handling the technology and data leading to the creation of Metal Gear, the Patriots AIs, and of course the worst thing ever invented, the internet. The idea behind the Patriots, I guess, is twofold. One, to restore the balance of world making into American hands, or perhaps place it there in the first place. It's opposing two philosopher nations had undergone communist revolutions in the previous decades and now posed an ideological threat on top of the existing geopolitical threat. Of course, that may be at odds with the second idea behind the Patriots, to carry on the boss's will. The boss's will of seeing the world reunited reminds me of Carl Sagan's famous quote. There is perhaps no better determination of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. The boss very much believed in unifying the world as one, following her mission to space and seeing the world again as that pale blue dot. To Zero, the boss's will meant unifying the world under a single regime of control based on science, technology, and military might. To Big Boss, it would come to mean a world where the soldier was no longer a tool for the government or anyone else, perhaps a world sans frontieres, without the power brokers like the philosophers and eventually the patriots perpetuating the same cycles of violence, the snake constantly consuming itself. I suppose to Ocelot, her will means a world where everyone has a cool gun. Which, to be fair, the boss does believe in cool guns because she has a really cool gun. That's true. She has a really cool gun. It's called the Patriot. That, that's Ocelot's. That's, that's what he wants. The world where everyone has a cool gun, Snake. Can you imagine it? Big Boss, of course, would quickly fall out with Zero, and their opposition would be the secret undercurrent for most of the franchise after that, chronologically speaking. Some of this stuff we can discuss more with later games, but I did want to lay it out here so we can clearly track this stuff. But you mentioned before that you didn't really like these very likable characters like Paramedic and Sigint becoming Patriots, so I figured we could discuss this decision and some of the pros and cons of it and how it plays on themes. So just, you know, some 
pros that I'm going to throw out here first. I guess there's an idea of corruptibility or a descent into evil or breaking bad or the dangers of wielding great power that basically anyone can be captured by these systems and turned into these kind of power mongers or war mongers. And I think also the idea that, you know, the all these characters would go on to be the Patriots, which, again, would mostly be revealed in MGS4, would be sort of, you know, the themes of that game in terms of questioning fan service and wanting answers about continuity. Yeah. It's like, you wanted to know who the Patriots actually were? Well, this is the answer, and it sucks. <laughs> uh, you know. That's the one argument that I I understand, that I, I do think that is that is one of the the. the, the MGS4 themes that really works. Uh, my, pro- I, I just don't know if that's 100% the motivation. My problem isn't that, that Sigint and Paramedic become, and they found this thing with zero and it loses control. It's that one of the real flaws to me with MGS4 is that Kojima goes so, he tries so hard to tie all three games in that like, even being Big Mama is fine, but like, it could have made the MGS3 people into an, a different organization that mutated and became the Patriots. But but directly tying them into the Patriots, who the second game spends the entire game telling you are you know the worst people that have ever lived, history's greatest monsters, it just doesn't fit with paramedic specifically with these cool fun people who like talking about movies. It's really really like dissonant. What proves me right on this, I think, is that they go out of their way to make paramedic basically into e- like even more evil Naomi Hunter at one point. Like she ends up being Doctor. She's Doctor Clark, right? Yeah. And it just doesn't that that doesn't fucking fit with me. I don't. It doesn't make it. Maybe it's just the way. Maybe it's just that they cast the woman they cast as paramedic. It's just too like too nice. She just seems too fun. Like I, I just don't. It, it does. It does not track with me well at all. Sigint, it's not. It's less of a problem. I don't think because you don't really get a sense of who he is later. You don't really get – he's not really portrayed as just like a moral evil character as much as he is just like he works for the government and he you know, works for DARPA. He makes yeah, weapons. Which I mean he works for DARPA, yeah. so that's that's its own. But like there's nothing about him specifically whether or not like he tortured 100,000 people to make the internet, which, you know, maybe somebody did. But like I don't – you know what I'm saying. Like it just doesn't – it doesn't track with – it doesn't fit. It doesn't feel right in a way that a lot of the other stuff in this game feels right. Like a lot of the Ocelot stuff feels like, yeah, that's what Ocelot was like as a kid. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. Big boss tracks, like even the boss, a character that you had no idea existed before this game fits very snugly into the mythology. That's the one thing in this game to me that it just doesn't. And that's entirely four. It's on four. It's four entirely. It did that. Yeah. And it feels like he was forcing in. He's like, well, I don't have anything for paramedic and Sigan to do. Like they can't just be, fun characters you you hung out with for a while. No, they have to be lore characters who are important. I don't know. I know. Let's make them into the history's greatest monsters. It's like, that doesn't... I don't like that. It doesn't fit. Yeah. Yeah, and I get that. And like you said, I think the strongest argument is that it's specifically being like, you want lore answers, then, you know, they're going to end up sucking. You know, we can point to the rise of Skywalker as, oh, you want some answers? Here they are. And they ruin things that came before it. They're that bad. Well, that wasn't on purpose. They thought that was cool. Yeah. Well, that's J.J. Abrams for you. If the argument is that that, that Kojima is, is verging back into Dadaism and just being like, you don't deserve good art, that's fine. But that also also flies in the face of the rest of MGS4. Yes. Uh, and I also want to make sure when we... This is especially going to come up when we talk about MGS5. When we say that, you know, parts of, you know, MGS4 is questioning why you want fan service or continuity or more sequels, 
we want to make sure we don't give because you can very easily turn some of those arguments in excuses for bad games. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't want to do that. We still want to try to take these on their terms and not try to make excuses. Like a lot of people say MGS5 is an incomplete game, but that's the point. And you could very easily use that to say, you know, justify a lot of bad games out there. Yeah. Um, I think there's certain aspects that are hollow or that are specifically like phantoms. Like you have the outlines of stuff, but not the substance. But, and I think those are ways that you can say it helps forward the themes, but saying stuff like it's incomplete on purpose or the answers suck on purpose. Um, can very easily be used to describe a bad game, and I don't want to use it as a justification like that. Thankfully, none of these are bad games. But I, I think that's also I think that's um that's a more recent thing that's happened with these games, and it's it's directly residue of people misunderstanding two for you know eight nine years, mm-hmm. and then being like, oh, there's actually a lot in this, and then you can look at so it's people trying to trying to do that same sort of alchemy on other Metal Gear games they don't like as much four or five uh i guess it's just those two <laughs> well no i was gonna because we have peace walker in there too and i think you either like peace walker or you haven't played peace walker is my <laughs> yes yes but one thing i did kind of want to just you know we're nearing the end of the episode so i don't feel so bad getting a little off topic here but uh you know, we in our first episode on this podcast, we ranked our Metal Gears, and I want to remind people that uh, we still have two games that are in my top uh, three that we haven't even begun to discuss, and that is Peace Walker and V. Um, I think a lot of people think of MGS3 as almost being the peak or that, and, you know, I agree, it's my favorite MGS game, um, you know, and kind of it as that perfect synthesis of all of Kojima's you know, the way he likes to make games and them all kind of working best at this game. And then it's kind of all downhill from there. Um, And I just want to stress the fact from our point of view, it really isn't because even though games aren't maybe as good as Snake Eater, which how many games are, uh, you know, we still love a big, basically everything that comes after. And I also haven't played Revengeance ever, and I'm very excited for that. So it is sort of the end of, I think part of that is the Harry Gregson Williams stuff. Um, it is sort of the end of the quote unquote classic formula of Metal Gear Solid though. Like every game after this has a very different it, it this is the end of, of remaking Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake, I guess is what I'm saying. Yes. The games after this don't they kind of break away from that formula a lot, a lot strong in much more strong ways. And this is a trilogy, you know, it works they work together really well. And from that point is where you start getting two timelines and two to snakes and all this different stuff. And it's a different series after three. Yes. This was very clearly meant to be a trilogy. And even if Paramedic and Sigint were always destined to be Patriots, regardless of, you know, whether MGS4 happened or not, it would have at least meant to be really, really vague um, from what we get in this game. Mm-hmm. I don't think anything mm-hmm. in this game specifically hints at Paramedic um becoming Dr. Clark and all we get about uh Sigint becoming the DARPA chief is just uh in the end timeline it says he invented the ARPANET it doesn't say he was Donald Anderson and he died at the Shadow Moses incident yeah. so even those connections were meant to be for us to either put together or come up with our own canon to help fit those together yeah I'm gonna say again the only character who gets that stuff in this game is Ocelot and it's all great we all love it so it's fine because <laughs> he's Ocelot he can he can pay he is. This is gonna be a really weird aside. There's a there's a, a um a lot of people who've done who worked on the Sopranos in the last like six seven years as that series has regained its place as in in the culture hierarchy. 
have uh, have talked about like what characters they like to write, and every writer I've ever heard from the show has always said their favorite character to write was Jun- was Uncle Junior because he can quote say whatever he he can he can just say anything because he's an old you know he's a cranky old man. That is Ocelot's role in Metal Gear. He can just basically say anything they want. There's there's nothing he can't say that sounds ridiculous because he's a ridiculous farce character. So like, he, you could do anything with Ocelot. It's great. He's the he's the best character. You were lucky. We'll meet again. So that's mission complete for this episode. And I do want to mention that next time we get together, we're going to be talking about the Cobra unit in full, which I'm very excited to get into with Brian here. Our frequency is podcastsoundsfrontieris at gmail.com and podsandsfront on Twitter and Instagram.com. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I've been Brian. We're men with names. I remember this time. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical, on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, you have a way to fall. Son, you've got a way to fall. They'll tell you where to go But they won't know So You'd better take it all They'll tell you what they know I want to say you almost Dr. Steve ruled that. A true patriot. I'm a true patriot. Yeah, I, I could have been, been a patriot if I wanted. <laughs> he was born in 1943 as the son of the boss or the joy and the sorrow and was named Ademska. I think you may have written that wrong then because he, he would have been born in 1944. He was born in D-Day. 44, yeah. Sorry. You guys might not know this, but the three and the four are next to each other on many, many keyboards. Oh, they are? Hmm.